0: This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, episode 214
1: and your future.
0: Hey, everybody, welcome to this week's episode. Tomorrow, what are you doing tomorrow? Want to hang out? (laughs) We've got our Not Your Average Financial Summit happening, and I'd love to hang out with you. We're going to be having an incredible day, full jam-packed of content uh, and opportunities for you to meet me and a number of our associates, as well as the founder of Bank on Yourself, Pamela Yellen. She's going to be there. Uh, You have one more day to RSVP, and then we're shutting the doors. We'd love to have you there and you cannot attend unless you've RSVP'd. So make sure you do that. You can find the link to our signup page in the show notes of this episode. So be sure to join us. This will be an important event, something that you won't want to miss and a strategy that could change your life uh, might just be buried among the conversations, the tactics and the presentations that we're going to be giving throughout the day tomorrow. That's October 9th, 2021, Saturday, tomorrow. So go to the show notes, or you can go to notyouraverage.mn.co. Sign up for our membership site and find the event. It's happening tomorrow. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode. It's mid-November, 1923. The hyperinflation of Weimar Republic has reached its peak. Due to Germany's obligation to pay large reparations after World War I, When the american dollar was worth 4.2 trillion german marks that's one dollar for every 4.2 trillion german marks guys it literally took a wheelbarrow's worth of paper to buy a loaf of bread in those days can you imagine walking down the street with that thieves might decide to steal the helpful wheelbarrow and leave your worthless money on the ground i mean that's what hyperinflation can do and hyperinflation did that and it caused the german economy and the banking system collapse, of course. Now, guys, the thing about finance is it's not an opinion. It's not an ideology. It's not a political debate. It's just math. I love it. And in my business, quite often, I'll look at someone's net worth statement. That's part of my job and work as a certified financial planner. And you can either be looking at your personal net worth, or we could be looking at your business's balance sheet. You might have a positive net worth where your assets exceed your liabilities. Or you might have a negative net worth where your debts are are more than your total assets. In other words, if you were to sell everything, all of your assets, every last thing, would you have any money left in the bank? Or would you still owe somebody a little bit more cash? Being in a negative net worth situation is not the end of the world. We work with folks one-on-one in an advisory role all the time. And folks come to us, whether they have massive assets on the balance sheet, or if they're just scraping by trying to pay off their debts, there is actually something far worse than being in a negative net worth situation. See, at least when you have a negative net worth, you're able to earn your way out of that situation. However, there is a financial tipping point after which there is no mathematical way to break free. It's when your interest payments on your debt is so huge that your earned income cannot even pay the interest on the debt. Okay. So let's imagine you're uh, uh, earning a hundred grand a year. Okay. And maybe you've got some credit cards, maybe you've got some mortgages, but you can still pay the bills, even though you might have a negative net worth. Now fast forward and you've racked up so much debt that just servicing the interest exceeds your entire income. That my friend is when you've truly fallen into the financial black hole of which there is no hope for escape. How do you know if you're in that situation? a calculation called net present value. To walk through this, you simply perform that calculation where you forecast a person or a government or a business's expected future cash flow, you know, their revenue and their costs, and you net those cash flows against each other. It's a tremendously helpful calculation for individuals and business owners. But what about the government itself? Can it fall into that same financial black hole? Well, one thing that makes applying the net present value calculation to a government a bit different is that governments are able to print or borrow their own money in a way that, you know, you or I or a business cannot do. Now, this does not make the net present value math irrelevant, it merely postpones the inevitable and enables the eventual shortfall of the government to grow. So you might think constructing a model to analyze the solvency of something as huge as the US government would be really difficult but it's actually a fairly simple process to analyze. In fact, most of the information can be found at usdebtclock.org. And we took a screenshot of that uh, as of the recording date. So you can go check that out. Uh, As as of late September 2021, you can kind of see what the US net present value is doing. Okay, so let's take a look at some of this. The US government's positive cash flows are quite stable, guys. Uh, you know, it comes almost entirely from one source individual income taxes. That's you and me, by the way. <laughs> uh, we are the government's greatest asset. Uh, as of 2021, there was a positive cash flow of $3.8 trillion. Try to keep as many of these in mind as possible. I'm going to kind of give you the bottom line uh, here in a few minutes. So there was a $3.8 trillion positive cash flow that's coming from individual income taxes, corporate taxes, and other revenue. So it's difficult for the U.S. government to increase those inflows because the country is past its growth stage. In in fact, if you tried to tax us too much more, uh, we'd simply either work less or find ways to avoid paying those taxes. And we've moved past the growth stage. We're into a maturity stage as a country. And even maybe some people might say a decline stage as we all age, as the boomers age. Thus, our GDP, our gross domestic product growth rates are expected to decline. You know, we were easily doing five, 6% for a long time there, but now even hitting 3% growth uh, as a GDP is really difficult for us as a country to achieve. Even to the United States' own optimistic model, we're seeing an expected decline of GDP for the rest of the century. Also, attempting to increase tax rates will stall the GDP even further. It'll cause even further reductions to the GDP, leading to a bigger percentage of a smaller number. Now, the U.S. government's negative cash flow comes from a lot of different sources, defense, social insurance, interest payments, and other endless programs. However, they tend to be fairly stable, locked in because these programs are really sticky, and because cuts to one bucket tend to be offset by additions to another bucket. America has no recent history of financial responsibility. Since 1970, outflows have exceeded inflows except for a few years of surplus around the year 2000. Now, generally, citizens are not really fond of cutbacks. Look at Greece's austerity measures that they took a few years ago. Nor are corporations, who at this point have a greater say in how the government is run. So the path of least resistance is to just keep spending until you hit that brick wall, whether the creditors cut you off or hyperinflation kicks in, for example. What were these cash flows for the most recent year? The United States government has a revenue source totaling $3.8 trillion. Again, that's mostly our income taxes. And our total costs this year are $6.8 trillion. That's an operating loss of $3 trillion in one year in one year. Now, total government spending was 45% of the country's $22.8 trillion GDP, making it far and away an above average year for spending for obvious reasons with the pandemic and more. Now, again, I'm not counting on this being a political episode, I certainly stay out of that mess. I'm just simply looking at the math. So let's do the net present value calculations. Step one, you get your current assets and liabilities figured out. So as most of you guys know that the decades of these sustained operating losses that we've had in this country uh, have resulted in a sizable national debt. This last year, of course, even added to that The present value of that debt is simply the current value, which is negative. It's actually a negative $25 trillion. That's uh, our total assets, which is our our revenue of taxes, $3.8 trillion, minus $28.8 trillion in total liabilities. That's a negative $25 trillion. Now, step two of the net present value calculation is to get expected future cash flows figured out. Uh, Next, we need to get the estimated future cash flows and and inflows and outflows to our timeline. We've got to choose a long timeline because the government has promised to pay debts that extend for many decades. Debts like Social Security, Medicare, that sort of thing. So the US government itself uses a 75-year timeline in their own model. So let's look at that together. The first promise the government has said that they'll pay is on social insurance operations. Uh, Government actuaries have already modeled these cash flows out for 75 years. And their base case estimate is a present value of a negative $49 trillion. That's the estimated future Social Security and Medicare receipts, estimated future payouts to seniors, essentially, the government calls this off balance sheet debt, Uh, these debts to citizens plus the official debt, Uh, results in a subtotal of $69 trillion. $69 trillion. That's our total current debt plus the unfunded liabilities of social security insurance. This is per their own financial statements at the US government. Uh, Next is core operations. These actually run at a gain. We've we've had a $27.9 trillion gain expected over the next 75 years, our core operations. That's good. So there's some good news here. Next, the interest payments. The next component we need to look at are the annual interest payments on the debt projected out over 75 years. The current payment in this low interest rate environment is about $300 billion. That's 9% of the revenue. However, the government estimates interest rates will average about 5.1% over 75 years. So they expect interest rates to rise back up over 75 years to 5.1%. So increasing dramatically where we are now at 1.8%, our current rate uh, to borrow money as a government. And of course, our debt will need to increase to pay the unfunded baby boomer benefits as they continue to retire. So plugging this into our net present value model, we're gonna get a net present value of future interest payments to banks and, and international corporations and ourselves. The net present value there is $110 trillion of debt just to service our interest, just to pay the piper, not to pay down the debt, just to service it. And finally, we need a terminal value. So finally, our last year of our model, year 75, uh, we need to place some sort of terminal value there. We're gonna call that the liquidation value. We plug that in there, that closes out the debt. It would mean essentially we'd pay off every last debt. Somehow we'd come up with all that money in 75 years. Uh, We'd have to have a present value bucket earning some interest for us. And right now that bucket has got a huge hole in it. It's a negative $38.8 trillion. So each step I've I've really tried to be as generous as I could in building these assumptions in, but we need to put all this together to create a net present value of the United States. So we calculate that net present value. Uh, We just simply add up the numbers I just listed there. Uh, And so you get the social security, the core operations, the interest payments, and then that terminal value number. And that gives us a net present value of a negative 189.6 trillion dollars. It, it almost hurts Steven say that out loud. Uh, so to provide a point of reference, Credit Suisse calculates the global wealth at 360 trillion dollars as of 2019. That means our government shortfall represents over half of the world's global wealth. Let me say that again. By the government's own numbers, the shortfall represents 52% of the total wealth of the entire world. And so the financial model of the US government is clearly melting down. The US government tries to hold its core operations together, but larger and larger liabilities from social insurance are coming due. There's negative cash flow that's increasing, interest rates continue to rise, and more loans have to be taken out to avoid default, which of course increases our debt, which of course increases our payments and those keep increasing, it's a combination of rapidly increasing debt and increasing interest payments that sends negative cash flow hyperbolic. That's us falling into that black hole I mentioned at the top of the episode. And that breaks the model. And in other words, we default on our debts. Of course, the absurd shortfall that I've been talking about will never actually come to pass because at some point before 75 years go by, all that interest payment will eventually be called The banks for the United States will call us and demand payment, and we won't be able to pay it, and that will result in a default. In fact, this is according to the U.S. government financials. This is a report that comes out every year, and as of 2017, I'm going to read a quote directly from the U.S. government's own financial report. They say, and I quote, the debt-to-GDP ratio rises continuously despite flat primary deficits. So they're assuming no massive coronavirus at that point. The debt-to-GDP ratio rises continuously despite flat primary deficits, mainly because higher levels of debt lead to higher net interest expenditures, which lead to higher deficits in debt. The continuous rise of debt-to-GDP ratio after 2026 indicates fiscal policy is unsustainable. The longer policy action to close the fiscal gap is delayed, the larger the post-reform primary surpluses must be. Be to achieve the target debt to GDP ratio at the end of the 75 year period, end quote. Now that is a quote for the ages right there. Their fiscal policy is not sustainable, they say. And there is 100% probability that this ends in some sort of default. The longer the delay, the report says, the larger the default will be. But of course, they don't use the D word. They're saying the words post reform surpluses as in somehow some way we'll figure out how to get another surplus out of this country of ours. So how does all this end? Let's, let's talk about that for a minute. And then let's talk about some solutions for you and me. Well, unfortunately it ends with a four-letter word and the word is, yep, math, M-A-T-H. Did you think I was going to say another four-letter word? No. Again, basic finance, math. Okay. This is not politics. This is just looking at the numbers. People always say, you know, Hey Mark, you know, there's hope there's going to, we're going to think of something. Our country has survived worse, but there's no such thing as magic. Net present value math is simple. It's authoritative. It's apolitical. It doesn't have an agenda. Either revenues will have to be increased, or cost is going to have to be decreased dramatically, or we run into default or hyperinflation. Those are the outcomes. In fact, guys, this is already happening. They're already inflating the money supply. Listen to this. This will blow your minds. If you're if you're chilling out, I I need you to come back to me for just a minute. If you're multitasking, in the year two thousand, the M two money supply that's like how much money is floating around in the country. Uh, In two thousand, it was four point eight trillion dollars. At that time, we had a country population of 300 million people. Currently, our population has grown by 10%. We've now got 330 million people in this country. Our money supply is now $18.8 trillion. So we've grown our population by 10%, but our money has grown by 341%. What? By 2024, our population will grow another 4%, but our money supply will grow by 10 And by 2028, our population will hit another 4%. Again, it'll be a population at that time of 358 million people. Our money supply will increase by another 237% from 2024 to an astonishing $105.8 trillion. So wrap this up from 2000 to 2028, our population increases by merely 19% but our money supply increases by 2,164%. What does all that mean? What it means is the government is destroying the purchasing power of our money. There's no surprise there. That's called inflation, which is a stealth tax. Why stealth? Because nobody had to pass a law. Nobody had to agree to raise our taxes here. This is called a stealth tax. And it's actually more deadly Than a real traditional tax increase. Why? Well, one, no one had, had to have the courage to raise taxes on us in Congress. It just happened by printing some money. But two, it's sinister because everybody, everybody pays this stealth tax. The rich pay it, the middle class pay it. And yes, even the poor people pay this stealth tax. Nobody is excluded. It's the most harmful, I think, to the middle class and the poor because they're the ones who can least afford to pay this stealth tax. They don't even have enough money to go buy the bare essentials for their families. And yet, because of the government's insane economic policies, they'll be forced to survive on even less. Let's turn the corner and talk about what you can do against all of these weapons of math destruction. That's right. That's not a um, misspeak. They're weapons of math destruction. What are these weapons being used against you? Well, If I was to boil it down, the weapons are compounding growth, leverage, and the velocity of money. Your government is using these against you by destroying your purchasing power. If you think you can use a bank savings account to get out of this, guys, I'm sorry, but you're mistaken. Banks themselves, they've figured it out. They've figured out that they can pay you no interest on your savings. And that, of course, incentivizes you not to save, but rather to take out debt at their bank instead. Debt is their preferred product that they're trying to sell at the bank. Governments similarly are using the same logic to inflate away the purchasing power of your hard earned savings. So you've got two enemies warring against that little savings account you have at the local bank. Now, these are the weapons that are being used against you by our government and our banks who are ready to build insane amounts of debt, leveraging themselves to the hilt and to speed things up. This is compound growth, leverage and velocity working against you. So guys, here's the key phrase for the entire episode, do not bring a knife to an inflation fight, you need to use the same weapons to protect yourself against inflation. So again, those weapons are three principles for your money, compound growth, leverage and velocity, make sure your money never stops doing any of these three things. So where can you get compound growth, leverage and velocity? How can you hedge against this insidious stealth tax of inflation? Now, some people might say that the best hedge against inflation is the stock market. But is it true? Every year, Massachusetts-based company Dalbar releases the Quantitative Analysis of Investor Behavior report. This analysis is mainly designed and seeks to evaluate several different aspects of the intersection of human thinking and investing outcomes. It's my favorite report because it honestly shows the real results of actual investors. Now, one of the most fascinating data points from the QAIB report is a multi-year rundown on investor performance from all different types of stocks, bonds, index funds, blends of all of those above. It even looks at target allocation funds like TDFs or target date funds, which most people have in their 401ks. So what's it all say? According to Dalbar, their report says the average asset allocation fund investor for the last 20 years achieved 2.54% year over year growth 2.54% over the last 20 years. Now guys, inflation over that same period of time was 2.14%. So the stock market with a blend of stocks and bonds in your portfolio index funds, basically anybody listening to this, if you have a 401k, an IRA, or target date funds in your portfolio, you are not keeping up or just barely holding on to the official inflation rate, no matter what your account statement might say your real return, not the phony average returns that they advertise on your account statement, your real return is very likely closer to 2.54%. According to Delbar. Now, if we needed the stock market to truly keep up with inflation, and to help you grow over the last 20 years, We would need the Dow Jones to be closer to 50,000 points today. And we're recording this in September 2021. And right now it's only at about 34,000 points. So we are far short of where we need it to be just to be keeping up with inflation over the last 20 years. Other people think maybe real estate can help hedge against inflation. But according to the Case-Shiller Index, real estate prices have only grown by about 1% above inflation over the last 30 years, only 1% above inflation. And now we know that the government, in times of crisis, are willing to force us to stop collecting rents. And they're talking about things like a national rent cap. So I would hardly count real estate as an effective means to protect against inflation. So when I have these sort of conversations with clients, uh, they think that there might be only two options stock or real estate. You know, those are our only two options to beat inflation at its game. But they know the power of compound growth, leverage, and velocity. And they know that bonds are a terrible hedge against inflation. So, you know, what else is there? Well, if if those are the average solutions, then guys, we need to think outside the box. What are some of the not your average financial strategies that can fight against inflation? Well, let's start with the first. What about a fixed indexed annuity? How does that impacted by inflation? Well, today's retirees face a very real prospect of 25 years or more of retirement. Now, guys, even at a very modest 2% a year of inflation, that means over a retirement of 25 years, that's a 64% loss of purchasing power, meaning you'd lose 64% of your money's worth over the course of your retirement. So enter a fixed indexed annuity with an inflation writer. Now, there are several different types of writers that you can add to annuities. And one specifically is called a consumer price index writer. And another is called a cost of living adjustment rider. There are other riders that tie your increasing annuity income to a prevailing stock market index. So the more inflation you have, the more the stock market might increase. And if the market falls, they the annuity company are going to guarantee that your income will not fall, but it'll just remain flat for that particular year. And then you reset and begin to grow again the next year. But remember, when the markets are crashing, you don't you just simply don't get a pay raise that year. So while everyone else is cutting back, you're holding strong, annuities are frequently used for income, yet many people do not realize they can be structured to help hedge against the loss of purchasing power due to inflation. Even annuities that have a level payout can be structured this way. And let me kind of explain this. It's called laddering, laddering. So I want you to imagine for a minute, a ladder with multiple income rungs. And Every couple of years, you might jump up to the next rung. So, an annuity might have a level payout, let's say 10 grand a year from your first annuity. And then you hold on to a couple more annuities that are deferring themselves for a few years on the back burner. So, that every couple of years, you might bring forward one of those annuities to kick on. So, maybe that second rung on your ladder might be a second annuity to throw a second 10 grand a year of income. So, now your income went from 10 grand a year to 20 grand a year. Your third rung might bring up another 10 grand a year. So now we're up to $30,000 and we're kind of keeping ourselves growing every couple of years, we get that nice pay raise. That's a guaranteed roll-up annuity also could ensure income growth that could hopefully keep up with or even exceed inflation. Another annuity design that we've been really fond of has been used to offset the effects of inflation using what's called a COLA or a cost of living adjustment provision for the annuity's growth. Now, the income rider might generate some increasing income and keep up with the cost of living adjustment. So they might watch something like the consumer price index or watch some other formula like the the stock market index, uh, and they would increase your income each year according to the cost of living going up. So talk about an easy solution, right? If the price of milk goes up by 4%, well, then your annuity income went up by 4% to help keep you stable in a world where prices are rising. Now, it's not unusual for annuities to provide increasing income to start somewhat lower than maybe their level payout alternatives. However, you can significantly outpace the lifetime income amount of a level income annuity if you live a long time due to all these pay increases you'll get throughout retirement. In fact, let me tell you a quick story. We had a client in her 60s start an annuity with $150,000 from the sale of a house this year. And she sees her future income in five years starting at almost 10,000 bucks a year. But with conservative income increases over the next 30 years, her annual income will have grown to over 30,000 bucks a year. This is the same annuity. It started at close to 10. And it's now over $30,000 after her retirement reaches a close. Another younger client started an annuity this spring with $250,000 in an IRA, but by her age 65, she'll have a starting income of $163,000 a year of income. That's awesome. But that's just where the income starts. It's what happens next that's really cool. By her age 70, just five years later, with conservative assumptions, the income has now grown to $220,000. Remember, it was one hundred and sixty-three. dollars 5 years later it's already up to 220,000 bucks for that year and by her age 85 it's grown to over $540,000 a year of income. Now guys, could $540,000 a year help you deal with the rising price of milk? <laughs> you bet. In fact, annuities with indexed income riders like the two clients I just mentioned are dynamically responsive to inflation. So the more inflation we experience as a country, the more you benefit where the price of milk gets more expensive, this strategy of fixed index annuity with an increasing income rider is like inflation insurance. And that new income then becomes locked in. So if we ever have a down year, if we ever have a period of say deflation in our future, which to be honest, is also quite possible as key demographics play themselves out in this country. If we ever have deflation, then you get to keep the higher income guaranteed for life. Let's turn our attention to a second strategy. What about bank on yourself type policies? What happens to them in the world of inflation? And in fact, uh, several clients have asked me this question, which kind of prompted this entire episode. They asked me, hey, Mark, in the event that inflation rates rise dramatically to double digits, or even hyperinflation over the next five to 20 years, due to, say, currency instability, or too much money in the system, Uh, Will my policy's value naturally adjust at all in that climate of the lower-valued dollar? Boy, what an intelligent question, this person asked. So here's my response, and tell me what you think. I said, it's concerning to see central banks manipulating interest rates. Nothing is totally immune to Weimar Germany-style inflation. When runaway inflation happens overnight, however, if inflation is even double-digit or triple-digit over just a year or two or three, not much can be done. Remember, though, our premium is guaranteed at the same level for our entire life. So if inflation goes up by a couple basis points, or even dramatically, your premiums will get easier and easier and easier to pay over the years. Also, some good news, your cash value and death benefits will grow according to the profits of the insurance company that you have your contract with. Therefore, the profits of that company would go up and therefore keep up with inflation. Those would grow even more dramatically in a super high interest rate environment. Inflation leads to higher interest rates. Okay. Inflation leads to higher interest rates, which leads to higher whole life insurance dividends, which means more money in your pocket. Once again, whole life insurance is not immune to hyperinflation, but the cash value and the death benefit would grow in larger dollar amounts than what we see on current spreadsheets that I share with clients and tabular details. In the 1980s, for example, whole life insurance returns achieved 11 or even 12% or even higher dividend rates, which were keeping up with rates on mortgages, loans, and any other cost of money during that same period of time. In fact, I did an episode, guys, on this, just a side note. Um, If you go back to episode 113, Amanda Neely really rocked that episode. Uh, I was just holding on for dear life as she went through a, a number of nightmare scenarios including hyperinflation. So go check out episode 113. Now insurance companies that I would recommend and any bank on yourself professional would recommend these insurance companies that we recommend have much of their assets in long term investment grade fixed income assets. This would be in plain speak, that's like a corporate bond, a lot of real estate corporate bonds, that sort of thing. So when inflation drives up interest rates, bond interest rates will typically increase, which can increase the policy dividend as well. This is precisely what happened during the high inflation periods of the 1980s. Interesting to note too, that since 1920, according to the Federal Reserve economic data, corporate bond yields have almost always been higher than inflation. I want to say that again, since whole life insurance companies mostly put their money in corporate bonds, it's interesting to note that even since 1920, corporate bond yields where most of the money is for insurance companies have almost always been higher than inflation. That's kind of encouraging. The majority of the insurance company's portfolio is invested in investment grade fixed income assets like corporate bonds, and less than one to 2% is invested in low yielding US Treasury debt or other government debt. Their bond portfolios are well diversified across many industries and companies with no investment of an insurance company representing more than 1% of their assets. So let me say that again. So again, the insurance company must be fully diversified across a number of different asset classes and no one investment, no one real estate deal or one bond can be more than 1% of the insurance company's entire general fund or investment fund. So due to these financial strengths, due to the reserves of the insurance company, they have to have the ability to hold on to these assets. They're not buying and selling bonds you know, like it's like they're hotcakes. They're holding on to them until they mature. And even if they might go up or down in value due to bonds and inflation rates and all that, they're simply collecting that coupon payment until that bond matures. Now they've had virtually no exposure to the risky investments that caused the market meltdown of 2008. And they're masters at underpromising and over-delivering and have never missed a payment on an annual dividend to policyholders for more than 100 years. That includes the early 1980s of high inflation, double-digit inflation of the 1980s. It includes also the Great Depression of the 1920s and 30s. So when, not if, but when inflation rears its ugly head, our whole life insurance policy cash values will increase far greater because the greater the interest rate, the greater the dividends that are paid. And the greater the dividends are paid, the more money is in your policy. And remember, guys, dividends are forever, not diamonds are forever. Dividends are forever. Forever means the rest of our lives because when you use a dividend to purchase paid-up additions, which is what I typically recommend clients do when they have bank-on-yourself-designed policies, that dividend is then locked in. So, out of all the financial opportunities out there, all the financial strategies, all the products that could be made and available to clients, I don't see anything better than these, not your average financial concepts and strategies. I can't see anything better. I can't find anything that's even equal to what we've been able to discuss in this episode today. So let's end with a few questions. Do you know anything else out there in the world that can do what I just described? Now that you know all the wonderful things that you can do to stay in control of the future economic events, how much value would you like to build for your family, for your business? This Whole episode is sort of an episode in peering into the crystal ball. Of course, I realize. However, if we have a strategy in place, then we can respond in a positive way to anything that happens, whether it's good or bad. However, it must be a choice. It's your choice. You must take action if you want to see financial success. So that is my hopefully hopeful ending to this sort of dire episode. Again, guys, final note. This is the last day before... Our Not Your Average Financial Summit. If you don't hear it on the day of, I'm not sure we're going to have a way to get it out to you. So go and make sure to RSVP. You can go to notyouraverage.mn.co. That's notyouraverage.mn.co. I cannot wait to see you there tomorrow. And uh, thank you all for joining me for this week's episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think and live differently with your inflation, your economy, and your future.